Hello, my name is Dr. Jim Doty, and I'm the host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast, where we explore the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. Hi, this is Dr. Jim Doty, host of the Into the Magic Shop podcast. My guest today is Sylvia Vasquez Lovato, author of the recently released memoir, In the Shadow of the Mountain, a memoir of courage. This story documents her youth growing up in Lima, Peru, as a victim of childhood sexual abuse, her struggles, and how she overcame her demons by climbing the seven summits. Thank you for listening. Well, welcome, everyone. My guest, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, is Sylvia Vasquez Lovato, and uh, we're going to chat about her new memoir, uh, In the Shadow of the Mountain, a memoir of courage. So uh, welcome today, and thank you for being with me. Thank you, Jim. What an honor to be here, and I've been looking so forward to this opportunity of connecting with you, so thank you. Well, what people may not know is that you and I have known each other for a little bit, and I had the pleasure of meeting after our friend Lisa Christine introduced us, and actually you'd had a head injury at that time, and then we became friends, and you actually got involved in uh, my work at Stanford and took the uh, Compassion Cultivation Training Program, but we can talk about that later. Uh, Yeah, we should, we should talk about that later because you're being very kind the way that you're putting it, but I would love for us to reconnect about it later. So I'm going to put a note here. <laughs> yes, uh, uh, actually do that because sometimes I don't have the best memory. But uh, not to uh, sort of bring up uh, subjects that are difficult necessarily, but the reality is they're part of your life. But the great thing is where you begin doesn't have to be where you end. And so maybe you can tell us your own challenging background and uh, sort of your path to where you're at today. And I don't think uh, many people uh, who may just pop into this conversation understand uh, the degree of your determination, um, will to overcome these challenges. But I think the also the metaphor is that all of us have this within us. It just has to be unleashed. And maybe that's what our message is. And maybe you can start at the beginning. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Jim, once again. What what an honor. I mean, I have been a huge admirer. You know, your book, Into the Magic Show, was very pivotal in my life, especially after my brain injury. But let's let's connect a little bit to all of this. So I was born in Lima. I was born and raised in Lima, Peru. And unfortunately, as you know, I'm part of a very sad, unfortunate statistic in which one of three women around the world are going to experience some kind of sexual violence. And so for me, I was a victim of sexual abuse at my own home between the ages of six to 10. And this was done by a family friend that my parents trusted. And unfortunately, how this person got to me as well is by telling me that my parents knew. And so, you know, I was a very impressionable young young child, like all of us. And um, I also, you know, wanted to to kind of be a good child. So I wanted to obey. And, you know, unfortunately, around the same time, the circumstances at my home were not the most optimal. My father was very close-minded. He was very abusive and very violent. So I was quite scared of him. And, uh, and so when a person tells me, well, this is what your parents want, of course, you know, I don't want to piss off my dad because he, you know, would whenever we wouldn't behave, he would actually get quite mean to us. And he was also very violent to my mother. 
And so, you know, these circumstances and living in a world in, in the 80s in Peru, we had a lot of economic challenges, hyperinflation. We had uh, the development of an ongoing civil war. We had a terrorist movement. So all these unfortunate situations added to to a really unfortunate upbringing, and it was very it was very unsafe. I ultimately found out. I mean, this abuser got married, and after he got married, and my parents took me to the wedding. I was about to do my first communion, and that's when I was like, "Wait a minute, you know what's going on? This there's something that it doesn't really connect." And I kind of was like, I, I think I remember telling this person, like, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to tell the priest. I mean, I'm about to get my first communion. And this is, and that was kind of my way of fighting back and just like, there's something off. But, you know, I was always confused. I mean, you know, the adult world seemed too complicated. Um, and it was about a year after my communion that I had a lady come into school who told us about self-care and mentioned for little girls, you know, that you're pure, pristine and, you know, nobody should abuse your body or touch your body. And, and that started being the unraveling for me of being like, wait, what has happened to me? This is not right. And I remember watching a TV show in which they had, uh, it was a, a Christian show, The 700 Club. Pat Robertson, very famous. He was big in Latin America. So in, in a dub format, I'm hearing him saying, interviewing, you know, there had a segment of women of the streets and, you know, a panel of women who all have been former prostitutes, who all of them said, well, I've been abused, I've been abused. So for me, kind of their description of what they had gone through, I'm around age 10, barely about 11, and I'm going like, whoa, wait, this has happened to me. This is not right. So, and why, you know, that I'm not a child of God. And so maybe it is because I am the bad person. I'm the mean person. And so what I did is I actually, you know, put the shame. I inflicted the shame. I inflicted, you know, the anger, all, all the abuse in me. And I just kept it to myself. And I decided, if anything, to just transform myself, to make myself an ugly duckling through, you know, my last years of elementary school and all through high school. We only had elementary and high school in Peru. And then on top of this, to make it worse for me, you know, I easily got bullied. So then my voice went away. And so I really, really deeply struggled, you know, kind of having a, a normal upbringing. I mean, even a teenager, adolescence. And I actually kept, as I kept growing, I, I started kind of being like trying to make sense of it. And then I figured my father was behind it. And so my relationship with him became very contentious. And I had a blow up with him when I was around 15, when I told my mom what had happened to me. And I was like, and my father did it. And she went in shock going like, wait, 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 what? How is this? And so that's actually when the first time I, I bursted out, you know, the pain that I had gone through and all the abuse that had happened. And, and that was pretty significant. It was the first time I kind of asked for help. Um, or I just couldn't take it anymore. And my mother kind of tried getting a little bit of help. We went to see a psychiatrist who recommended for me to leave the country. Uh, there were so many people who were migrating at the time. I refused to speak to people in detail because I just, I didn't want to press any charges because at the time, even any women speaking out, you know, in any circumstances, you know, wasn't even supportive. And and so I, I kind of was like, ah, let me escape, let me run away. And so I had the opportunity of coming to the States with a scholarship to go to college. And I was very studious. That was one thing, you know, out of the positive that I turned all that, 
kind of negativity just to myself. And I read a lot. I, I, I studied quite a bit. And I kind of escaped to this country, you know, running, looking for a new life. Yet we know what happens when we run away from our problems. Eventually, they catch up to us. You know, we can be the fastest, but... No, that's true. Well, just to, you know, emphasize, uh, you know, what you said earlier, I, I mean, it's so sad because children who are abused often blame themselves and, uh, and they carry that shame and hurt with them. And especially when it's somebody who nominally is a caretaker or a trusted individual for all the reasons uh, you just mentioned. But also, as you point out, though, that leaves a wound and a wound that causes pain. And as much as you run, uh, you're still carried that baggage. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, that eventually manifested when I finished college and I moved to San Francisco. And I um, got a, my first job was with an alcohol company. I was so desperate to find a job in the States. I didn't want to go back to Peru. I was on a student visa and I had a hard time, you know, people were turning me down. You know, I remember sending a couple hundred letters and, you know, no responses. And ultimately, I found a small company in San Francisco called Sky Vodka. And they were an up and coming at the time. And they were happy to hire me. And I, you know, was, I felt so much loyalty. But then again, I, I already had tendencies of drinking. I already had had episodes when I was in college of, you know, a little bit of out of control drinking, but I always felt, ah, it is the college life. I mean, if I'm really honest with myself, which, you know, comes across the book, I started feeling the effects of the numbing of the drinking, even when I was a kid. Growing up in a lot of our cultures, it was very typical, like, oh, just give the little kid, you know, just, just have a little sip. And even from an early age, I remember feeling the motion of like, ooh, this is nice, sweet, juicy, but also numbing. It takes me away. It kind of relaxes me. So I was already, you know, developing a very unique relationship with alcohol at an early age that only got, you know, that it, that it, that it just grew exponentially when I got my first job out of college and working for a vodka company in which drinking not only kind of wasn't mandatory, it was, was highly encouraged, and, uh, and it, that didn't blend really well. So I ultimately became a raging alcoholic. And while that was happening, you know, the memories, the trauma of my abuse caught up, and it just turned me into a really bad addict, uh, somebody who was out of control. But what, what was interesting for me was that not only I was out of control, but I, on the outside, I was a you know, functioning human. And that's something that I've candidly shared in the book, that journey of how we fool ourselves, how we, we, can, we, can, portray, we can pretend to appear something. Meanwhile, you know, inside of us, we're just simply in a self-destruction mode. And so my journey was pretty much, you know, I, I mean, in, in self-destruction and I, you know, got arrested one time, got sent to jail because of a DUI. And I was literally, you know, spiraling out of control until I hit a rock bottom spot, which came a year after my DUI, when my youngest brother found me passed out drunk at the entrance of my home. And the irony for me was that throughout all my drinking experiences, I had, I had ended up in the ER multiple times. Nobody had been a witness. It was almost like I was doing this on my own. 
And to have my youngest brother kind of seeing it was enough of shame for me to like, okay, I do need help. So I, I remember reaching out to my mother and asking her, you know, can I, I need help. And so she did something very unique. She had me come down to Peru and do a powerful ayahuasca session. Wow. And, and I remember, like, I remember going there feeling like, and I had heard of ayahuasca. She actually was one of the most conservative people. And she actually had done it once and it had connected her to something sacred for her. And so for me, I remember going, you know, into this session feeling like, okay, well, let me see who are the people that are damaging me. Who are the negative forces that are causing all this pain? Like, let me, let me, let me face that. And on this ayahuasca session, what I encountered was my little girl who I had completely, you know, tried to delete from my life, ignore. And I saw her in a little corner, just wanted to be embraced and protected. And then I remember seeing myself as an adult and reconnecting and feeling an energy at that point, something that was coming whole, like a piece of Lego that had been missing in my life. And as we reconnected, I, I remember hearing a rumbling and next thing these mountains formed around us and my little girl grabbed my hand and pulled me into the mountains. So that was the most magical vision that I had from this powerful session of ayahuasca, which is what has led me to this incredible journey. Well, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that because... Uh... You know, I'm sure you know that uh, the use of psychedelics to sort of, if you want to call it a reset or come to terms with your prior trauma has become very powerful and people are appreciating uh, the power of that. And uh, like you, for many, many people, it's been incredibly transformative. Now, when this happened, were you climbing mountains or did this lead you to climb mountains? This led me. I, you know, I come from one of the most beautiful mountainous countries in the world. You know, the Peruvian Andes are, you know, one of the most gorgeous mountain chains. And, and I remember, I think my parents, we did a trip when I was about five and I saw them and I got scared. I was like, yeah, I even couldn't like, you know, climb like a five feet boulder for all of us to take a photo because I was like, ah, altitude. So I never, never really was, I never had any appeal to them. And for me, this vision was so revelatory that I remember after coming back to San Francisco, I also had quit uh, the vodka company. I had just started working at eBay. I figured, you know, why don't I put this? I mean, like there was a part of me actually, Jim, if I'm very, if, if I can be very honest, there's a part of me that felt all right, you know, this is a weird vision. I don't know what to make of it, walking among a mountain. Let me just follow this and I have nothing to lose. You know, who knows what I'll gain? Uh, I, you know, I only had seven days to go to the base of Everest. It takes 14 days to do a proper expedition. So I was almost going like, you know what? Let me let me shut down this crazy idea. Like what, what vision it came in, this little girl in me, well, let me just go. I mean, let, let me, you know, kind of take the cat out of the bag and just, just like experience this for the hell. I have nothing to lose. So I went in just being like, yeah, you know, plus all the companies that I was talking to were like, yeah, we can take you in one week. It's crazy. One place is like, yeah, 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 we can take you. 
And this is with no experience. No experience whatsoever in Nepal. <laughs> I, I was just, you know, I was at that point in my life that I had nothing to lose. I mean, what, what had appeared to me, the visual of me as a little girl just seemed very magical. And it's almost like, okay, well, let me, let me take a leap of faith and follow this. You know, who knows what I'll find, but, you know, let me try to honor this. And I, you know, had no experience. I remember, like, had to borrow all the gear. I only had to buy my shoes. And I landed in Nepal. And on my second day is when I came across the Himalayas. And that is when my life changed forever. Because it was the very first time. I remember, I will never forget that moment. So I'm getting out of the town of Namche Bazaar. And then we make a ride. And all of a sudden, you just, like, it was a beautiful day. And, like, vroom. The Himalayas just appear in front of you. And it's just almost indescribable. They're so magnanimous. They're just these massive formations towering over everything. And I was just so insignificant compared to them. But instead of being afraid, there was this powerful reconnection. There was this, 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 this sense of kind of safety and security that I had never felt from any other human. I remember almost feeling this, you know, visibility. And if anything, I, I remember feeling this emotion inside of courage and just going like, and I remember visualizing my little girl and just having this like sense in me, like, let's go further. And so there was this strength that came inside of me and I made it to the base of Everest in four days. I was like, I want to see more. I want to be surrounded by this. Uh, as if the mountains were, were speaking to me, as if the mountains were like, welcome, you're here, you're safe. And, and so that pushed me to the base of Everest. And when I got to the base of Everest, which is what really is so magical, I saw the sunrise. And as the sunrise was coming out, I had tears in my eyes. And there was this magical view of Everest. And I made a promise. I, I felt so much gratitude. I felt the mountain was giving me something that in my 30 years I had never experienced. And I said, you know, Everest, I'm going to come back one day and attempt to climb to the top. Yet you look quite scary. So I'm going to come back under two conditions, become a mountaineer so that I can actually have the experience and not endanger anyone, but also come back with a social cause. And, and that was very kind of a powerful spiritual moment, very holy. Yet one of the magical things is that the Nepali, the Tibetan word for Everest is Chomolungma, which means mother of the world. So in front of the sacred mother of the world, I'm making this promise to, to you know, come back as a mountaineer. And that is what kicked off this incredible journey. Wow. So to become a mountaineer, what did you do? You know, I decided, all right, how are we going to do this? I came across something called the Seven Summits, the tallest mountain in each continent. And I figured, you know what? I can do that. I can start easy. You know, I'm, very, I'm a Virgo, so I'm very practical. And I'm like, okay, you know, step by step, let's go easy to hard. So I figured, you know, seven of them, I, I should be able to get enough experience. And, and they varied in difficulties. And so that is what got me into my journey of becoming a mountaineering first Kind of like doing the first part of the promise, becoming a mountaineer was the easiest one because it was more of kind of my own self and physical. The social cause did take a, a much longer time. And, and, you know, it also meant for me coming to terms of what had happened to me 
I, you know, I kept it very private in terms of my abuse. I, you know, my mother also at the time was alive. You know, this was always a very sensitive topic. But, you know, I, I figured, you know, maybe I'll do this in behalf of people. Maybe I'll do this, you know, for a particular cause. I mean, I kind of not only was setting the goal of returning to climb Everest, it's like almost trying to, to do something meaningful or trying to find purpose was, was almost as challenging as the mountain itself. So what is that cause? I, I mean, I know, of course, but why don't you tell us about it and what motivated you and uh, what you're doing with that? Well, so, you know, just like life, I started climbing a couple of the mountains and life took over. I got distracted, left climbing for a while. Now, were you still drinking? I was just drinking, and but yet on any expedition, I wouldn't drink because of altitude. And and I every time I went to any of these expeditions, there was something about fear. And I realized that I just needed to, like, you know, it, it was one of those things that even at the time I felt I had the drinking problem and whenever I could control it, it felt like, okay, it's manageable. It's semi-manageable. It, maybe I have, I have the power to come and go with it. But then mountains also were very, were very powerful in, in keeping me away from drinking because you couldn't do this hangover. I mean, at least for me, I had to be in touch with my body because of fear. And I was never doing this as a way of like, oh my God, I want to kill myself. I'm on a suicide mission. You know, so I started experiencing fear, you know, being pushed out of your comfort zone. And I needed to, to be kind of present. And that's something that I was connecting my drinking, like, you know, with not drinking and being on doing something very extreme and a physical activity, it pushed me to kind of have all my senses. And, and so that in a way, mountains kept me away from drinking. However, every time I'll come back from a mountain, it'd be like, oh, a little celebration here and there. And, you know, I mean, I, I felt I could, I could have some of this. So it was, I think my, my relationship to drink, it kept moving up and down, up and down. It hadn't been as crazy as it was in my 20s, especially even after I left the vodka company. But it was still in my shadows. It was still something that, you know, I could pick up any time. Were you, um, because I, I think this is... Uh not uncommon, and certainly I've had my own experiences with addiction. Were you using this in some ways to numb yourself, but in the other ways to try to get close to people, but not understanding what intimacy and closeness is? I was scared of intimacy. I was incredibly scared of intimacy. Um, you know, in the book, I, I share a very painful journey, you know, with possibly the love of my life. And, um, and it, you know, I, I think the abuse, becoming a survivor had created, you know, made me see vulnerability as a weakness, made me see intimacy, closeness as a weakness. So I was very close to that. It was actually very messy for me to, to kind of come to terms to all what had happened in terms of my relationship to, to drinking as well. You know, it was part of my social DNA. It was part of, you know, even as I started working with, with eBay, you know, in terms of, in terms of a, a social currency, it's almost like, you know, the opportunity of like, ooh, have, have something, have a little fine glass of wine and enjoy a good conversation. And so I wasn't at the time really willing to to kind of separate. I mean, I I remember just moving along with this this dream of climbing Everest, 
uh, trying to move along with life and but it's still you know having having the drinking in the background um, 2013 was a, a very pivotal year for me because I lost my mother and I got divorced and I remember it was the time that I I think even as I tried to get back to drinking to numbing the pain drinking was no longer cutting it so it became it was very unique and, and I love how we get into the into the book into this particular chapter called the divorce ones because it's almost like the realization that this undealt pain the undealt trauma ultimately can you know trump anything else like you know nothing could numb it no no, no longer drinking and I had no 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 real solution but just to face it I did a, a one-week meditation at the Hoffman Institute. I did the Hoffman process, which was a, a very early connection to, you know, trying to to reconnect to to yourself. But the biggest thing that I took out of them, they were like, you know, this is about connecting to your inner mountains. And I was like, oh, my God, mountains, mountains. Oh, my God, I had made this promise. Let me get back to mountains. And so I took myself at the end of 2013 to climb Aconcagua in Argentina, and I remember going there with the purpose of like, I wanted to kick the shit out of a rock. I was so mad at life. I was like, ah, I need to go and scream. And I know a mountain is going to put me on that edge. And of course, you know, like, and this is what I love when people say like, oh, you conquer a mountain. I'm like, no, you can't ever conquer a mountain. I mean, the mountain kicked the shit out of me. I mean, the mountain is has been in existence for hundreds of millions of years. I mean, we're just like passengers you know, on, on a temporary, you know, voyage. But um, the night before I summited Aconcagua, uh, we were uh, close to 20, 22,000 feet, and I had an emotional breakdown. You know, the, the lack of oxygen, I was getting a little bit of altitude sickness, and I think that just, you know, left me pretty vulnerable. And it was maybe one of the most powerful experiences with my own vulnerability I remember just crying out on my tent, allowing myself to feel the pain. And I feel the universe had compassion for me because the next day, not only I was able to summit the evening after my summit, my vision of what I needed to do with my life, work with young survivors of abuse and of trafficking and giving them the opportunity to healing nature came so clear in my head. So it is amazing that, I mean, I, I think possibly, you know, that breakdown in Aconcagua was one of my most pivotal and most, one, of my, one of my most vulnerable moments, but also a moment of compassion, which actually really put my purpose very loud and clear and said, okay, Sylvia, get your act together. Don't let go of this, you know, get in shape, go, not, not, so, not physical shape, but like, you know, get your ducks in order, just really focus. And, and by having this purpose, I think that became a much driven energy, a driven force for me. And, and so that's how it led me to meet our mutual friend, Lisa Christine, who was doing anti-trafficking work. Uh, I've been doing slavery work and anti-trafficking work through her photography. And so, you know, we were able to go to Kathmandu, to Nepal. And I remember I was, I was coming in going like, hi, I have this crazy idea, young women who wants to join me, you know, uh, I, you know, who wants to come with me to the base of Everest, to healing nature, because it worked with me. I don't know if it's going to work with you, but uh, let's give it a shot. And it led me to work with these amazing young women from Shakti Samoa in Nepal, 
survivors of some of the most, you know, horrific abuses in, in trafficking. I mean, and they had had a dream of eventually making it to the base of Everest. Uh, and for Nepali, this is, you know, crazily expensive. So that was, they were, they became my very first group. Then I came to the States and I started working with various organizations until I was able to find a group of young women interested. And, and so that led me to launch my nonprofit. That led me to launch my foundation called Courageous Girls, which led me to, to kind of, you know, put this crazy dream or vision in, into practice. One of the things I just want to emphasize, and I think you've sort of said it, but we haven't directly mentioned it, is you weren't yet healed yet, right? Uh, I mean, in the sense that you were still struggling with your demons, and in some ways it's not quite as bad, but you still haven't directly confronted it yet. And I, I think that's uh, you know one of the biggest challenges, because in some ways I think you keep trying to appear normal— <laughs> And you you keep taking steps, but uh, uh, until you have complete authenticity, and what I mean by that is you no longer have fear, you are yourself, and you're able to sit with that and tell your story and not be afraid anymore or be afraid of being judged. And and I have to tell you, for me, you know, I think, um, I mean, my healing personally started in a way, actually, you know, it, it's, it's a twofold. The year after I summited Everest, on my anniversary of Everest, I got involved on a bike accident. I fell off my bike without a helmet coming down, you know, one of the steep streets in San Francisco, fell on a ditch and had a massive brain injury and ended up on the ICU. And while I was on the ICU, the doctors found a small brain tumor at the base of my brainstem. And because of the trauma that I had experienced on my head, they said, like, you know, we're going to have to wait a couple of days until we can do a proper MRI to determine if your tumor is cancerous or benign. And I remember that very first night feeling like, well, my mom had died of cancer. You know, I had some relatives in the family. I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if it could be cancerous. And and I said, well, if it's cancerous, what am I going to do? And I told myself, well... I will quit my job tomorrow because I was no longer happy with what I was doing. And I would actually spend the rest of my life trying to, you know, do as as much good as I could in the world, trying to work with as many young women, trying to climb as much as I can and find a way to share my story. Because I and it was at the point of feeling like, you know, I, I felt so much gratitude for the experiences that I had had in life for some of the most beautiful sunsets and sunrises I had been able to witness in altitude. And I just, I felt like, okay, well, I would love to find a way to share my story. And it was interesting, but you know, that became the seed of, of trying to like coming, I guess, you know, full circle in my own integrity and, and being able to share this and to be as open. Yet I was still struggling with my drinking and it was in 2018, it took me about almost a year and a half to get ready after the brain tumor and the energy to, to try to complete my last mountain, which was Denali. And after I came back from Denali, my drinking was getting out of control. And I had one episode that I was like, okay, this is enough. I, I just can't, you know, I, I need to see either my life or my drinking. It's either one more, you know, it's, an, it's another cocktail or my life. And I was like, I need help. And that led us to to kind of kind of talking with you. <laughs> I remember it was my birthday, uh, September 6th of 2018. And, and, you know, 
we met and I was sharing a little bit of this and you recommended, you said, you know, Sylvia, I think you should take this class, you know, at Stanford, you know, what you had created, the CCT, Compassion Cultivation Training. And it's like, I think it's just going to help you. And my God, I mean, Jim, not only it helped me, <laughs> it changed me. I mean, that class was so pivotal in my life because it was the very first time I finally was able to embrace what self-compassion was for me. Uh, you know, I had been compassionate to others. I mean, working with the young women was a way of giving, almost a way of hiding, you know, from, from my true fears and my pains. And the compassion cultivation training, those meditations literally, you know, turned my life upside down. And they are the impetus that I'm now four years sober. And, um, you know, it, it's powerful how it was kind of like the, the most beautiful journey and I think it also was what sealed for me, you know, this opportunity of, of being here and sharing the story. You know, I always wanted to share the story, but I also wanted to feel in full integrity with myself. And I knew that if I was going to be as open and raw, that I also needed to walk this talk. So, you know, it wasn't going to be any, any helpful to be like, oh, yeah, I used to have a drinking problem, but now I can have a, a, a cocktail every now and then. Yeah, really? I mean, can I? And that's what I decided, like, you know, life is short and, you know, we're here to be in service. And on top of this, also, I had had this drinking relationship for almost 40 years. So, you know, this I knew this was going to take all my strength to to really face it. And, and it's been one of the most beautiful gifts that I could have ever given myself. I'm appreciative of being a little bit a part of that. And uh, uh, and I'm glad you're better. And I'm glad you're on this path. You know, when we met about your head injury, uh, was that in uh, 2018 as well? We were talking a little bit, I mean, like 2017, but like, we, you know, we were able to kind of sit down and, and uh, you had given me some recommendations. I mean, I had read your book and I'm like, ah, you know, this is okay. A little bit of meditation, visualization, manifestation, inspiration. But, you know, the full on, let me deal with this addiction. Let me see what's happening. You know, the compassion meditations were my, my saving grace. Well, you know, the wonderful thing about that is what so many people have a hard time getting around is, is or becoming aware of is how much they beat themselves up and they're not able to understand that they're okay as they are and that every human being is imperfect, every human being has struggled, every human being has failed, and in the face of all of that, we're worthy. We're worthy of love. And I think, you know, that's the big message. And when you finally understand that, then everything changes for you. And uh, uh, I, th and actually, maybe what you can uh, talk about now is how everything has changed with the movie. And it's interesting, we share the same agent. <laughs> yes, we share the same literary agent. Well, you, you know, to the point that you just made right now, I think, you know, we're so hard on ourselves. And and I think what really, one one massive awakening from, from developing um, the compassion uh, program, or for me to understanding compassion, one of the meditations kind of brings it to common humanity. And that has been a terminology that has had a massive impact on me, you know, just to, you know, because I think when we, at least for me, 
the times that I have felt the most alone and pushed to numb myself is when thinking that, you know, it's only me, that I'm alone, nobody else can understand. And what, you know, the classes brought to me is to know how we're all interconnected. And just when you're thinking that you can be the only one drowning on this problem, there is someone else. And, you know, that connection of common humanity has been really powerful. You know, it is the fabric, you know, it's, it's that DNA. And I think if, when we, if we can all, if we can all relate ourselves that way, then it takes away the loneliness. Um, and it's, I mean, and, and that's when, I mean, it, it's, it's a class that it should be a must take in humanity for all of us, because it, it just, I mean, you know, for, for, for an addiction that was close to 40 years in the making to have made such a massive, um, to, to really pretty much have stopped it, I, I feel it is quite, it's really revelatory. Getting my life together, walking this straight path. Well, I'm gay, but like walking this, you know, sober <laughs> path. <laughs> but, but walking this sober path, I feel, you know, like still being in purpose has, has been magical because of the connections, you know, uh, the doors that is open up for me. So, you know, getting this book out has, it's, it's been a dream getting the reception of the book, you know, how pretty much having become critically acclaimed is something I never imagined. And actually it's getting me a little bit uh, emotional, you know, just reading people telling me, I mean, what it is instigating in them, what is opening, how transformational, I mean, just the opportunity to share my story, kind of anything was what I, what, what, what I was aiming for, the opportunity of, of having a voice to the world kind of was, you know, what I was aiming and and everything else right now is is this you know beautiful kind of an explicable dream i mean you know it's interesting because what one thing i'm so excited with the book is that the book is this amazing roller coaster it's a real roller coaster you know people have been also joking with me like they're blaming me that they can put it down and they are not able to sleep because it grabs you it takes you up and down i mean the way that we are um you know the way that we structure the story but to me, it was almost like an invitation to kind of join me in this beautiful healing circle. And what I'm getting now is when people are reacting so positively and sending me such beautiful comments, I feel I'm getting like the love back. I feel people are coming and putting a warm blanket on me or giving me this, you know, hug. So that has been, you know, such, such, such a blessing. And, you know, not only just with the book, I mean, we had the interest of uh, of Hollywood, <laughs> let's call it that way, and it's getting turned into a film. And we, it was announced that, you know, an amazing young, talented woman named Selena Gomez, uh, which is a global superstar, is, you know, going to be playing me, uh, which is a massive upgrade for me. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I see the similarities. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, you know, it's really, actually, I have to tell you, when I was maybe in my 20s, I did look like her. My niece, my goddaughter, is her spitting image. And I'm like, ah, okay, I see it. I'm getting it. <laughs> no, no. Uh, d d you're doing just fine. Uh, well, that's exciting. So Selena Gomez as you. And uh, uh, do you have any idea when the movie's going to come out? You know, I've learned to to appreciate um, Selena's fans are called the Selenators, and I love how they keep me in check. Um, you know, and, and you know, the admiration for Selena. I, I mean, I always knew who she was. She's been also very open and upfront about her own mental struggles, about her bipolar, and I think she's been so fierce 
in taking such a strong stand on bringing, you know, the stigmas, you know, in front of the shadows. So for me, I'm like, wow, you know, that's that's the strength that I was looking for, for somebody who would be interested in playing me. You know, we have, I mean, the book was 306 pages. Uh, a script is 100 pages. So it is a third of the book. And that is our biggest challenge, figuring out, okay, what do we cut? Um, and so right now, our screen uh, screenwriter, who is also the director, the amazing Elgin James, is being hard at work at it. You know, my producer is this amazing woman, Donna Gigliotti, who won the Oscar for Shakespeare in Love and uh, just got nominated for Hidden Figures, which was an epic film. Scott Budnick, who has been a force in you know social justice, is also one of the other producers, you know, and, and we are all aligned in bringing a powerful message. So, you know, we are hoping to get the script completed this year, you know, then get a studio behind it and hopefully start the production at some point next year. And, you know, then kind of do the magic of the editing. But, you know, we are all aligned on this a powerful opportunity of bringing such a really strong message. You know, this is no longer my story. It is a story, you know, to, to bring hope to the world, to see how we all have it in us. And, and so, you know, I have, I have surrendered a long time ago to the ego and, and just have to, I keep trusting this journey. I keep trusting that, you know, things will come at its own weight. And, you know, but it's just important for me to, to keep sharing the message. You know, I, I call myself a messenger of the mountains. And I am here to try to convince as many people to kind of join me. You know, it doesn't need to be to climb Everest. If they want to, fantastic. But we all have our inner or our outer mountains. And and I, you know, I know that by reading the book, people are, are going to be inspired and encouraged to at least try an inner mountain. Well, my dear, our time has almost run out, but uh, thank you so much for sharing. And I would highly recommend the book. And I'm sure the movie will be incredible. And I so appreciate you spending a little bit of time with me today. And I'm sure that those listening are very appreciative of the reality that, one, we're all human, two, that we all struggle, and three, that with compassion, love, and an open heart and authenticity, you can overcome anything. Yes, yes, we can. My God, Jim, what a gift. Thank you so much for this opportunity. No, uh, listen, it's, uh, well, it's an opportunity to have met you. It's an opportunity to have uh, helped you in some ways, and I'm grateful for that. And it reminds me again of uh, what all of us are here for, which is to be of service and to do the best we can to be an example of uh, what it means to overcome hardship and thrive at the end of the day. Thank you. Again, thank you for being with us today. The Into the Magic Shop podcast can be found where you find your most popular podcasts, or you can find us at intothemagicshop.com. Music